listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are excited to be back in the new year. We are talking about psilocybin and all about magic mushrooms tonight. Just as a brief intro, psilocybins are a naturally occurring psychedelic. And really, this chemical, it's a prodrug. It's produced by multiple species of fungi out there. Comes from the genus psilocybe. It's converted to psilocin. That is what has its mind-altering effects, which is most similar to what we think of as our kind of classic hallucinogens. So that's our LSD, mescaline, DMT, those kind of things. We'll kind of talk a little bit about some of the pharmacology, and then we'll get into the mechanism of action, some of the effects. And what we really want to talk about is where the research is going on this. We have some research and studies into depression, some of the use with alcohol use disorders, and even nicotine. We'll talk about that. Sounds good. Sounds great. Should we talk really quickly about the history of psilocybin and magic mushrooms? Just a brief. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, magic mushrooms, they're obviously it's plant medicine. They've been around for thousands of years, mostly used in religious ceremonies dating back six and seven thousand years ago we have an earliest known record of mushroom use in 50, in like the 1500s in a manuscript of ethnographical research of mesoamerica called the florentine codex so this describes use of magic mushrooms by the aztecs in mexico obviously then you know we start seeing other hallucinogens pop up in history including isolation of mescaline in the late 1800s And then PCP was synthesized in the early 1900s. And then, of course, you have Albert Hoffman discovering LSD in 1943 and taking it himself and uh, kind of booming the emergence of psychedelics into the early 1960s. Around this amount of time, you see the synthesis of ketamine as well. And then you see the psychotherapeutic drug manufactured by Sanders Pharmaceuticals called endocybin, which was actually a psilocybin drug. And things were kind of booming in the 1960s, as we all know, in regards to psychedelics. But then the Controlled Substance Act was passed in, uh, you know, 19, I think it was 1974, wasn't it? The Controlled Substance Act uh, banning the uh, well, classifying psychedelics as a as schedule one medications and therefore restricting research. And so really, we haven't had a lot of advancement in research of psychedelics and psilocybin from that time until recently, when we started having more interest uh, and more um, publications on psilocybin and other psychedelics for the use of like the things that Darlene was just saying, and especially a lot of work coming out of Johns Hopkins University, when they've built the Center for Psychedelic and Conscientious Research just recently, but they have a lot of good research that's been coming out of there. So it gives you a kind of a brief history, but we do have this kind of gap in time from 1970 until 
kind of the early and mid 2000s in terms of research, but now things are really picking up speed because interest is peaking as we're looking for alternatives for treatment resistant depression and treatment, of course, for substance use disorders. And so this podcast, of course, is interesting to us as addiction medicine professionals because psilocybin is a drug that's considered one of our like abusable substances, right? It's one of our things that we screen for on a drug history, although it doesn't have a use disorder classification in the DSM-5. People don't typically have dependence, tolerance, withdrawal from uh, psychedelics or mushrooms. So we're going to talk briefly about that, but mostly move forward, as Darlene said, with some of the research for its therapeutic approach. As we kind of alluded to, it's called an endolamine hallucinogen. Like I said, similar to LSD, it works on dopamine and serotonin, as opposed to what we think of as our more dissociative hallucinogens. That's like your ketamine, DXM, PCP, those types. It acts as a serotonin 2A and 5-HT2A receptor partial agonist, and it acutely decreases the resting state connectivity with a default mode network. And this part is the most interesting as why we think it's maybe efficacious for depression and alcohol use disorders. We'll get into a little bit more detail a little bit later when we specifically talk about this, those disorders. Some of the effects. Typically, it is swallowed, either eaten or brewed as a tea or added to other foods. And people will describe feelings of relaxation, introspection. Some of them describe it like a spiritual experience. You can also get nervousness, paranoid feelings, panic reactions. That can be some of the side effects. The serious side effects can typically come from misidentification and mistaking poisonous mushrooms resembling psilocybin, and that can lead to unintentional and potentially fatal poisoning. Short-term effects people can experience, again, the hallucinations, alter perception of time, inability to tell fantasy from reality, muscle relaxation or weakness, problems with movement, and we, on the physical exam, you can see enlarged pupils. People can experience nausea, vomiting, drowsiness. Long-term, there has been reports of flashbacks, memory problems. And like Paula said earlier, it's rare that you, you, we don't have a, it's not typically that you see a daily use of withdrawal or tolerance. You would see episodic use. Now, where we no FDA-approved use, but now it's in research trials for treatment-resistant depression under strict medical supervision. And just a little bit backing up to the epidemiology, we talked about this in actually just a couple of episodes ago. It's been really interesting over the last really kind of 20 years, but this came from the Monitoring the Future study. And Interesting that hallucinogen use has been relatively stable the past two decades, but then we saw a pretty dramatic increase in just the past really two to three years. Starting like 2021, we saw maybe 8% of young adults reported past year hallucinogen use, and that was an, at an all-time high. Because compared to, we look at just even from, they were looking at just from 2016, it was at 
we were looking at three and 5% of past year use. And so it's almost doubled just in the past, we, I mean, the past decade, we've doubled in use. And this is, I think, coming from, we get this like perception of safety and this when we get this perception of low risk, then we see this increase in use. I think that's part of it, right, Paula? And then there's all of these supposed reported benefits. And so that's where we put our big, huge disclaimer. We are not in any way recommending that anyone go out and try any of this on their own. We're never recommending that. I do think it is worth talking about some of the research that's out there. Do you want to talk a little bit about a couple of the therapeutic potentials on that, Paula? Sure. There's there's a lot of things being studied in terms of the therapeutic potential of psilocybin. There's a very good article um, published in May of 2021 in the journal Molecules, published by lead authors Henry Lowe, and I can't, unfortunately, I'm going to not pronounce this other author's name very well, but last name is To Yang. And they look at various studies looking at its potential benefit for alcohol use disorder, stimulant use disorders, specifically cocaine, tobacco dependence, tobacco and nicotine, actually, opioid use disorder, cannabis use disorder, and then anxiety disorders, including PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, OCD. There's been interest in several studies looking at advanced stage cancer-related anxiety and depression, um, as well as adjustment disorder with anxiety. There's been look at treatment-resistant depression and major depressive disorder by itself. So more research is needed, but um, we'll talk briefly about three of these areas of interest. We're going to talk about the studies, the very interesting studies around alcohol use disorder, a little bit about tobacco use and psilocybin, and then the use for treatment-resistant depression, because the mechanism behind this is fascinating. And as healthcare providers, we're getting questions about the use of psilocybin for depression. And much like ketamine for the use of depression, well, actually, the difference being that ketamine, there is now FDA-approved medication for the use of depression um, that that is ketamine, S-ketamine. Uh, we don't have that yet for psilocybin, but yeah, let's talk about that. So should we talk about the alcohol studies first? And there are several, but we're yes. just going to talk about one. Okay. Yeah. Alcohol use disorder has been an area of interest with psilocybin. And there's a, this is a study that was published in JAMA Psychiatry, August 24th, 2022. So it's very recent. It's titled Percentage of Heavy Drinking Days Following Psilocybin-Assisted Psychotherapy Versus Placebo. In the treatment of adult patients with alcohol use disorder, a randomized clinical trial, lead author is Bogenschutz. So in this study, they did find that psilocybin administered in combination with, with psychotherapy produced robust decreases in the percentage of heavy drinking days compared with those produced by active placebo and psychotherapy. So this was an interesting study. What they did was uh, double blinded randomized clinical trial where participants were offered 12 weeks of a manualized psychotherapy. So both groups got the same psychotherapy. And then they were randomized to receive either psilocybin doses, I think it was 25 milligram per 70 kg 
for the first session or 25 to 40 milligrams per 70 kilograms for the second session versus a placebo, excuse me, not a placebo, but versus diphenhydramine, which is interesting. I guess they use diphenhydramine just because it's also a sleepy kind of relaxant type drug. And they use psilocybin, excuse me, diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams for the first session and 50 to 100 milligrams for the second session. They gave the medication during two day-long medication sessions at weeks four and weeks eight of the study. So it's a 12-week study. They get manualized psychotherapy the whole time. They used a combination of CBT and motivational interviewing. At weeks four, the group either got a blinded dose of psilocybin, 25 milligrams per 70 kilogram, or diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams. Eight weeks later, they got another dose of psilocybin, or diphenhydramine. And then they monitored their days of heavy drinking during the 30 days um, following. So they looked at 95 participants who um, were a mean age of 46. They had a small smattering of diversity. Most of them were white. They were 14% black and, excuse me, 4% black and 14% Hispanic. And out of the 95 randomized participants, uh, quite a large number of them got at least one dose of the study medication, and they were included in the primary outcome. And what they found was percentage of heavy drinking during the 32-week double-blinded period was 9.7% for the psilocybin group and 23.6% for the diphenhydramine group. The mean difference of 13.9% um, reduction for the group that got the psilocybin. Mean out daily alcohol consumption was also lower in the psilocybin group. So not only did they have fewer drinking days, they also drank less. And interestingly enough, there were no serious adverse events amongst the participants who received the psilocybin. So pretty interesting study, not a huge number of participants, I mean 95, um, and they randomized 49 of those to psilocybin and 46 to diphenhydramine. But Really interesting effect. And the fact that it was a double blinded randomized trial makes you feel a little bit more confident in the results. Um, there's been several other studies that have similar outcomes to this. So I think we're going to see more to follow. Hopefully we will about this. And um, there's interesting reasons as to why this may be helpful. But, you know, anything that's going to help our patients with alcohol use disorder is something to continue to pursue and to follow up. And hopefully we'll get more guidance on the use of it. And who knows, in years from now, and hopefully not too long, if it continues to prove to be helpful, we'll be able to offer this to patients. But again, emphasizing that this study included 12, 12 weeks of psychotherapy. This was not just given on its own or, or self-administered. So this was administered in combination with the psychotherapy. And both, but both groups got psychotherapy. That is really interesting. And I think it's also really important to note that the dose that was given, this is considered what quote, we call macro dosing. This isn't micro dosing, because I think that's a really big buzzword that is out there. And I think a lot of people erroneously think that that's effective. But a lot of these studies are actually showing kind of the opposite that you need to actually give an appropriate dose to patients to get some effect too. Am right, I 25 that? milligrams per 70 kilograms. Because typically, when you're looking at the micro dosing, it's like, one fifth to one twentieth of a dose. So it's like 0.3 grams, quite a bit different dose on dosing there just to give some a little bit of perspective. So yeah, just, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then, you know, 
In terms of tobacco use, there are some interesting articles um, similarly published on um, on this one in Scientific American. Johns Hopkins, well, that's just kind of talking about the studies, but Johns Hopkins has done a lot of the re research behind tobacco cessation and psilocybin. And uh, starting in 2014, one of the researchers there, Matthew Johnson, had did a pilot study to see whether this would be helpful. It was an open label study. So participants knew they were getting the drug. It wasn't like the alcohol use disorder study. These participants also got um, therapy. So they got what called, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, the researchers kind of guided participants in terms of they didn't talk or guide them during the time that the patients had psilocybin um, ingestion, but before the sessions, they tried to prepare them. And then they did talk therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy for several weeks, aimed at changing the patterns before and after taking the psilocybin. So psilocybin was given uh, in up to three sessions, one on the target quit date, two weeks later, and then another optional one eight weeks after people quit smoking. And the subjects returned to the lab for 10 weeks following to have basically laboratory confirmation of whether or not they were using tobacco. And what they found is that at the six-month mark after the study where people were given up to three doses of psilocybin in combination with the psychotherapy was that 80% of the smokers in the pilot study, it was a small pilot study, 15 people, had abstained for cigarettes for at least a week, which was a big improvement um, to us other smoking cessation programs where the rates are more like 35%. So again, quite a big difference. When they look at beyond one week, Johnson reported that 67% of the participants were still um, abstinent and quit from smoking 12 months after their quit date. Even 16 months after that, 60% of them had not smoked. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good efficacy. More than 85% of the subjects rated their psilocybin trip as one of the five most meaningful and spiritually significant experiences of their lives. So I'd be interested to know if they associated the experience with quitting, because that's the whole connection, right? And um, in our episode on ayahuasca, um, it seems like this, you know, these very deeply introspective experiences that people can have, not always do have, but can have with ayahuasca is what kind of, it's not the only thing, but it's what helps people kind of rapidly move forward to a place where they can continue to abstain, in addition to actual neurochemical changes that happen in the brain. And it's not only neurochemical, it actually seems to be like neuronal, right? Like remapping and that kind of thing. So that's yeah. the study that we're talking about for tobacco, Darlene. Yeah. No, that was a really interesting study. Again, there it's a small study. A lot of these are just very small studies right now, but they're definitely interesting and to be interesting to see what else is repeated out there. And there's been multiple trials for depression. When we were researching this, there's been at least six of them, six major trials on psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. And one of them, just in this past year, this came out, was published in Nature Medicine in April 2022 by Dawes et al. And it started out with two arms. Patients were given 10 and 25 milligrams of psilocybin seven days apart. And then they gave them a baseline of fMRI. So that's a fun functional MRI. And that was their baseline. And that was one day after their 25 milligram dose. 
And they used Beck's depression inventory as the primary outcome measure. The second arm of the trial was a double-blind placebo, so phase two randomized controlled trial comparing psilocybin therapy with escitalopram. So the patients with major depression received either two doses of 25 milligram oral psilocybin three weeks apart, plus six weeks of daily placebo in the psilocybin arm, or two one milligram oral psilocybin three weeks apart, plus six weeks of daily escitalopram, 10 to 20 milligrams in the escitalopram arm. And so they had their functional MRI was recorded at baseline and then three weeks after the second psilocybin dose. In both trials, the antidepressant response to psilocybin was rapid and sustained and correlated with decreases in brain network modularity. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, implying that psilocybin's antidepressant action may depend on the global increase in brain network integration. Why this was so inter- this particular study that was so interesting was it goes more into this mechanism of maybe why psilocybin is beneficial in depression. We've used SSRIs for years. We have a fairly good understanding of how they work. And we know that psilocybin and other serotonergic psychedelics effect, have that same effect on those 5H2A receptors, but why why is it different? So why do patients respond to these where they don't respond to other SSRIs? There's one theory, and there's this article that I really think explains it really well. And this was written by Laura Kurtzman. It's titled Psilocybin Rewires the Brain for People with Depression. I think this explains it fairly simplistically, talking about you have the landscape of the brain and thinking about those neural networks and psilocybin therapy flattens out that brain network and allowing it to then reintegrate and rewire. And some people, then they seem when they rewire, then they are come back together better. That's one theory. Then there was another also theory that talks about because we have such plentiful 5H2A receptors, they can become overactive in depressions. And because you have that disruption again by the psilocybin, then when they reform in the coming weeks, then you can see that improvement in depression. It's such an interesting mechanism of action. Still a lot of research to come. But I think that also helps us to understand why it helps our patients with addiction as well, because you have so much of that circuitry that has been disrupted by substance use. Don't you think, Paula? Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. And there's also um, antidepressant effects of psilocybin that are thought to be mediated by the action of it um, in the prefrontal cortex and the limbic brain, especially the amygdala. And, you know, we know the amygdala is associated with fear and it plays an essential role in perception and emotional processing. Uh, And in the cases of, in case of depression, we have this negative affective response to the world. And when people are exposed to psilocybin for whatever reason, it seems to increase um, emotional responsiveness and decrease the the blunted effect and the activity in the amygdala, which is really interesting. I mean, that's such an interesting thing, like explaining some of the side effects too, when you talk about the amygdala and the fear response that some people get. But I think it's just interesting, some of just 
how we're doing some of the research. And then I think it's just going to be interesting to see where this goes. But I think it's definitely something to keep following. Not that I, I don't want our patients going out there and trying this on their own, but I do think it is worth. Absolutely. And, you know, just in, in, in review or in conclusion, there's an article, you know, that discusses the abuse potential of medical psilocybin according to the eight factors of the Controlled Substance Act. And um, the conclusion of this is that psilocybin mushrooms have been used for a long time. Well, that doesn't necessarily make something safe because alcohol has been used for a long time and it's definitely not safe. But it shows that animal and human studies both show low abuse and no physical dependence potential potential for psilocybin. They've also done national surveys like the Net Monitoring the Future survey, and it shows low rates of abuse. Now there's increasing rates of use, but low rates of abuse and treatment seeking and harm. Um, and we also know that psilocybin now has some therapeutic benefits. They're gonna, there's possibility of rescheduling psilocybin. I guess it depends on continuing emerging research. But in the meantime, they hasn't there hasn't been any significant detrimental short or long-term effects on cognitive functioning or emotional processing, that there are significant harms, including dangerous behavior for people yeah. who are using psilocybin in unprepared or unsupervised settings, and also exacerbation of mental illness in those who are predisposed to psychotic disorders or who have a psychotic disorder. So yes. again, you know, people who are more vulnerable and have a vulnerable brain, uh, this is true for any hallucinogen, they are likely to have exacerbation of psychotic symptoms with the use of psilocybin. So that is a warning and a disclaimer. Absolutely. I think that's really important that this is absolutely not for everyone. This may be a potential avenue treatment for some, but is something that definitely is very interesting and something that we'll keep an eye on. Okay. Well, sounds great, Paula. Thank you. This was a great discussion. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.